with us uh, because we have had such a response regarding the passing of your beloved pets, the, the, the scrapbook, the, 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 the Tuesday scrapbook and acknowledgement of that precious family member, the pet. With us is now is Shelley. Hello, Shelley. Hi. Who do you miss? Oh, we've had um, we've had several dogs over the years. We've had um, black lab called Molly, and she was intelligent, and she lived to six. She was a um, yes, that was at the start of the year. We lost the chocolate lab, um, Clyde. Now he was actually a real. Oh no, sorry, Shelley. We that is a terrible, terrible line. So I'm so sorry. We can't oh. continue that. Um, but anyway, that's Shelley there, uh, who still misses the black lab Molly, who lived until 16, died two years ago, left a hole in Shelley's heart. So yeah, uh, thank you for all that wonderful, wonderful feedback. We'll pop more of that in the Friday mailbag. Uh, you are with the panel on our NZ National. We have Alexia Russell and Andy McCombs this afternoon. Now, Friday we talked about light rail, with Auckland's light rail projects to be scrapped uh, by incoming Prime Minister Chris Luxon. There may be a cheaper option in the wings, who knows. It was set to go from Wynyard Quarter CBD out to Auckland Airport. The costs massive. Treasury estimated the final budget at between $7.3 billion and $29 billion. And I mentioned Sydney's CBD light rail. There was a nosedive in patronage during the pandemic. I wanted to check in to the Sydney CBD light rail to see, well, if people are actually using it and can we learn any lessons from it. So with us is Matthew Hounsell, a researcher at the University of Technology's Transport Research Centre in Sydney. Welcome, Matthew. Good afternoon, New Zealand. It's nice to have you here. How long has Sydney had light rail? Uh, Well, Sydney had one of the largest uh, networks in the Southern Hemisphere, but that was ripped out and they started bringing it back in, in the late 90s, about 98, We've had our uh, central to southeast light rail since 2020. It opened just before the pandemic. Um, it is now extremely popular. It actually carries more people than the Northwest Metro. So the $3 billion light rail carries people more than the $20 billion Metro. Gosh. And I should point out that's an extremely expensive light rail by international standards. It's a Louis Vuitton light rail. <laughs> now, Matthew, <clears throat> was there a lot of opposition to light rail in Sydney when it was mooted, when it was started? There was a lot of political opposition, especially within uh, the roads department. Uh, they claimed that it would cause the entire city to seize up. And, of course, it didn't because people, um, the traffic patterns change. So we ended up building this extremely more expensive version down George Street in order to keep three lanes of cars there. But uh, once the pandemic happened, everyone saw that we didn't need those tra- those car lanes. And now they've all been replaced by pedestrian sitting places and it's really lovely and everyone loves it, but we ended up with a more expensive option because we didn't just go and put uh, humans first, cars last. Okay, so uh, talking about uh, the Sydney CBD light rail, uh, it's been, what, uh, just around three years in the running and patronage is booming here, says our expert. Alexa, you would have covered this uh, in the detail. 
Uh, we did do various a comparison. Yeah. Um, but Matthew, Sydney had, it was kind of a weird plan as you go thing, wasn't it? The plans changed several times and they bumped into all sorts of problems underground and the cost kept blowing out and, and people complained about the construction, non-stop construction dust. It was a bit of a, at the time it was a bit nightmarish, wasn't it? The big problem was they didn't allow the tram construction to just close some of the minor roads. They made them resurface Bridge Street 53 times and they put all of that cost onto the light rail. So you end up with a tram that takes longer to build. It's sitting in three metres of massed concrete because uh, the theatres you know, didn't want any vibration at all. It's extremely over-engineered. So if you were to do your light rail properly, it should be a lot cheaper and a lot less disruption. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the price estimates for ours were quite huge. What were they, Wallace? They were... Oh, up to $29 billion. What do you yeah. make of those those figures there, Amit, uh, uh, the eye-watering? I was looking at the plans this morning, and your light rail does look like a bit of a Frankenstein monster. It's... Um, it looks like it's trying to serve as a city building light rail down Dominion Road where it used to be, where trams used to run, and then a connection out to the airport. And that doesn't really make sense. It's no. not really dense enough out there to justify it. And certainly you would never put it in a tunnel and you would use much smaller bridges than what they're proposing. Oh. So you could drag, drop the price substantially, but you might be better off not going to the to the airport and just putting in a spur for the railway or BRT. Oh, that's quite interesting, isn't Bus it? All right, transit. this is, a, this is a, <laughs> uh, an expert in Sydney's point of view here, talking about the Sydney Light Rail, uh, up and running for three years. Andy, uh, who is in Wellington? Yeah, um, I was over in Sydney in April um, and really loved the Light Rail. And us oh, you've been on it? Yeah, yeah. Us Kiwis were laughed at by our Australian hosts um, for how excited we got about it. Um, <laughs> but also just being able to tag on with the FPOS card. Like, we don't have any of that fancy technology over here. What? It's wait, coming, wait, 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 wait. That is coming. Is it? Yeah. You can tag on with your FPOS card. Yes, and it will be nationwide. Wow. Oh, you've heard so, about that. So that's the long-term plan is yep. to make sure that we can all use our credit cards or our FPOS cards nationwide to use public transport. Well, if, um, if Auckland doesn't want the light rail, we'll have it down in Wellington, absolutely. <laughs> um, but my, my question uh, to Matthew is how do we convince the non-believers who think that we, we don't need light rail? Uh, so 50% of the passengers... Um, on the light rail, tap on with the credit card. They, it's Which means that a lot of them are just um, not thinking about it as a specific mode. They're just using it for convenience. And you see a lot of people who use it to get to events and a lot of people who use it in the evening. So the big thing to remember is all of your transport models are wrong because they're all based on you know Australian and American analysis and they massively underestimate patronage on trams. So... If you build a light rail down Dominion Road, you will shape the city and people will focus their investment around that. So you'll actually get a better city. And you have to remember that uh, every billion dollars you spend on buying cars and fuel overseas is an extra billion dollars you have to charge your customers. So that's a billion dollars you waste out of how rich you could be if you force everyone to drive. So... The more you invest in high-capacity public transport, the more competitive Auckland becomes, the more you can wealthy your uh, citizens can be compared to other cities like Sydney, which are just sprawling car messes.
Yeah, I see. What, I see what the government was trying to do with light rail. They were trying. They were building it along a corridor where the planning had been made made for high density houses through um, social housing <coughs> areas where people hopefully wouldn't. You know, they have fewer cars. Um, they had planned to build almost a city around the transport yeah. route, and the planning that for those houses had been already put in place. But it's kind of crazy. They've already built massive, massive, massive subdivisions out west, Kumu, Huapai, places like that, and there's not even a train um, track out there. The, you know, the train stop at Swanson. And here we are building this absolutely incredible sh- stuffing people into west, northwest Auckland and the, they have to get in their car to get to town. So, you right. know, how can you plan these amazing gold-plated tracks from scratch when you can't even sort out what's mm. already here? So just finally, um, it is very interesting this comparison, Matthew. So three years on, CBD, light rail, Sydney, people are using it, is it still controversial? No, uh, it's everyone just um, treats it as a part of the everyday. They don't even think about it. It's it's just there. Everyone loves it. Um, once they change the traffic lights to make sure that the trams had better priority, they're not as good as they should be, um, it became more competitive and more people switched to it. Mm. So it's every four minutes from more... Um, more park on every stop through the CBD. And that's could vital. That, that is so vital. Frequency is vital, right? Yeah. Fre- frequency is freedom. I tried to so, catch a train from the Spark Arena last night because I was going to Morningside and on oh, no trains today. Yeah, there you go. What kind of a system is that? Welcome to Auckland, Matthew. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it'll be a fantastic city, and that's what you know, where your competitive advantage is. It's a beautiful city, and if you build the high-quality transport and the dense housing on that corridor, yeah. people will want to move there. They want to start their um, businesses in Auckland. Nice to have you on the program, Matthew. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, that's Matthew Hounsell. He's a researcher at the University of Technology's Transport Research Centre in Sydney. Uh, yeah, it goes every four minutes. Frequency is freedom. Uh, it's not my experience. <laughs> Uh, it's not our experience <laughs> living in Auckland, is it? But, you know, I mean, we caught a bus into town to watch the netball last night. Um, you know, we had a few other places to go to. Had the public transport aligned, just because it was a public holiday, there weren't any trains. I mean, what, what is that about? That is just, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Alexia Russell, Andy McCombs on the panel. Now, a different topic here. Marine heat waves are coming for our green-lipped muscles. Oh, no. I hear you say, not the muscles, please. Well, our coastal sea surface has warmed by 1.6 degrees each year for the last two years. By accident, researchers tested what happens when the temperature is turned up on the shellfish in a lab. Muscles account for more than $300 million in annual exports and not to mention they're a staple in our house when we can get them. Dr. Leonie Ventner, Venter rather, is uh, at the Auckland University of Technology, uh, Aquaculture Biotechnologies Research Group. Dr. Venter, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I've got to say, um, uh, my own personal, I love a good muscle, maybe my favourite shellfish, uh, when we can get them. What does a warmer climate mean for muscles? 
So whenever any environment changes, it just means that the animal needs to adapt to this change or they will die. And even though this sounds a little bit grim, muscles are fascinating creatures and we've seen it time and time and again. Whatever stressor we, we put them in, they actually adapt to this stressor, um, yeah, enabling them to cope with, for example, a change in temperature. I guess there's, is that a slight bit of positive news there, uh, Dr. Venter, that um, there is an adaptability mechanism in muscles? Absolutely, absolutely. So like I said, they're fascinating creatures, and the more we work with them, the, the more we peel down these layers of information. So ideally, we, 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 we apply like an omics cascade, cascade of analysis, looking on all different levels, looking at the proteins, the metabolites, the genes, and from there we see that different aspects are activated when they are subjected to stress. And yeah, potentially these mechanisms that, that they, they give out, this is what we will use to make them even more um, protected in future, as to say. So yeah, these um, molecules yeah, that we'll find from these studies is, makes them especially good for selective breeding programs, oh, well, which makes them stronger. Well, that's, yeah. that's greatly only good to hear. We have a panel with us. Stay there. Uh, you've got to be a Paella fan, right? And you've got your muscles in there <laughs> with the shell, Alexia. Great news. Uh, yeah, sure. That's fine. Um, <laughs> Doctor, what I want to know is how do they react when faced with pollution? Because I tell you what, there's an awful lot of it seeping into the Auckland Harbour at the moment. Have you done studies on what happens when raw sewage comes into contact with muscle beds? So, so personally, no, our team hasn't looked at that. But muscles are, are filter feeders, so they they actually clean the environment to, to that extent. So, they, yeah, they're pretty cool animals. Hmm. Andy? Yeah, I um, didn't have access because the article was behind a paywall, so I assumed the worst and that we are going to lose all of our muscles. Um, it's, it's nice to hear that they're pretty adaptable. Um, but are there other species around that um, won't do so well with the with the warming temperatures? Most likely, um, we'll lose quite a bit of biodiversity that way. Um, yeah, what what are your thoughts on um, on the warmer oceans and overall? Our, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, it affects all aspects of the ocean, like you said. Um, especially, we see. Um, Animals like fish and the seaweed, the plant species, they suffer more severely. But the research we do mainly focuses on shellfish as well. They are pretty robust and they, yeah, kind of do their thing. Anything before you go? Is there anything else that you surprised that surprised you uh, about this study, Leone? Every time we work with mussels, we are rather surprised by the experiment, or by the outcomes, and this study was no different. So um, we saw that when the water temperature increased above 26 degrees Celsius, that some of the mussels died, while a certain cohort of the mussels survived. And these surviving animals became the surprising aspects, what we learned from them. So we saw that um, aspects within their metabolism and their immunity actually utilized the stored biochemical mechanisms to, to fight the stresses. So this time period of water, of increased water temperatures, and yeah, that resulted in them surviving and yeah. not not dying. So when when they adapt, the ones that have adapted, yeah. do they taste different? Oh, that's a great question. So by the, um, we didn't do a taste test, but that's definitely on the list going oh, forward. Oh, so, you've got to do a taste yeah, test. Wasted opportunity, right? <laughs> so 
Um, by the end of the experiment, the animals were in the lab by, for 11 weeks, and at the high temperatures, their condition became um, rather poor. So I wouldn't recommend eating them at when kept at these high temperatures for that mm. amount of time. They become translucent, like really not a nice fat muscle for Dr. Venter, thank you for your time on the panel. Appreciate it. Uh, kia ora. That's Leonie Venter there uh, from AUT's Aquaculture Biotech Research Group. There was, uh, I mean, uh, Hodoki Golf was just uh, uh, awash with muscle bears, apparently back in the day, but uh, reduced greatly because of uh, sedimentation, pollution, that type of thing. So, yeah. All sorts of things, yeah. I mean, yep. this is why people are pushing for a, either a mm. moratorium or an expanded, um, you know, um, fish-free mm. zone. Uh, big response to uh, light rail and public, public transport in general. Wallace, remember one of your previous experts said, the measure of a good public transport system is not having to look at a timetable. Now, finally, on Tuesday's panel, we had a bit of feedback from some regions uh, over the last year, over the last half year. Wallace, our local council aren't keeping up with the lawns. There is grass growing around the local rotunda. Not good enough. Well, the Carpenty Coast District Council is trialling a low-mow meadow this spring, a mix of What's called fescue and white clover will replace grass as part of a plan to reduce the need to mow public places. I thought, oh, let's get this uh, person on with us as Parks, Open Space and Environment Manager, Gareth Eloff. Gareth, welcome. Uh, Kia ora. Nice to be here. It's great to have you on. A mix of, what is it called, fescue and white clover to replace grass? Uh, yeah, and a little bit of rye thrown in there too. Um, yeah, basically a mix of um, yeah, species that are quick to establish. They, they're drought tolerant and hardy um, and require a lot less maintenance. Why are you trialling this low mow meadow? Um, a, a, a few reasons. Um, obviously the, the main catalyst for it was probably a bit of community interest actually through our community board. Um, but it dovetailed quite well with our um, um, approach towards moving towards a reduction in emissions. And our current mowing operations are probably responsible for quite a bit of uh-huh. uh, council's emissions. Yeah, too much mowing. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this, um, especially for the bees. And as someone who enjoys frolicking in a field, um, Do you? Yeah. yeah, there's nothing better than that. And I, I Googled it earlier today, um, and it just looks plush and comfortable, so ticks all the boxes for me um the the other benefit as well i guess is not having the grass growing over the path and needing someone to spray that back and um yeah give the the um in, insecticides pesticides um in the dirt so yeah or, or finally a good news story gareth yeah, so I think look it definitely ticks quite a lot of um a lot of our boxes um in that space um, I mean, low mow doesn't mean no maintenance. There will mm. always be an element of that. But um, we're keen to see where this leads us. I mean, obviously, a little bit of um, yeah, mixed responses across the country for similar trials. So we're quite keen to see at a local level exactly what it's going to mean for us. Um, well, the- you've got the fans here. Good on companies saving money and caring for the small insects. Germany have been doing this for over 10 years on their parks, roundabouts, berms. It looks lovely. Have you done anything on the detail about um, uh, uh, regions around Rotorua, the grass growing too long? Because you should. Oh, and I have done a big story for the detail, um, talking to Margaret, Dr. Margaret Stanley from 
opinion. Uh, I was always a big fan of a very freshly mown lawn. I love my lawn mowing. Uh, but after I talked to her, I felt quite guilty about it. And she told me just to sit on the deck with a beer instead. So, <laughs> and so I do leave the lawn between mows longer now. And I've just, it's just a mental thing. I think you've just got to get used to the idea, the aesthetic. Like, this is what my lawn looks like now. It looks a, slightly longer before I cut it back again. Is that a fair point, uh, Gareth? Talking about the, the the aesthetics of it now, but just um, let's let's just let's just remind ourselves that we need to look at lawns or um, grasses a bit differently these days. Um, yeah, I think definitely a fair point. Um, it'll take time to adapt and get used to it. Um, we're aware that in the UK, this this would have started quite some time ago, and now it's commonplace in most of the villages. And boroughs to 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 see similar situations. Um, you know, I, I think also just understanding you know that smell of cut grass was mentioned. Um, I, I know that, uh, that there's some suggestions that that the cut grass itself uh, might be responsible for as many emissions as the machine doing the cutting itself. Uh, hence, this you know the cut grass smell. So, yeah, there's definitely different perspectives to look at. Yeah. Is there a what if you like the cut grass smell? Is there a certain spray that you can buy? <laughs> Like an eco spray for to, to replicate the cut grass. I'm just being silly now, uh, Gareth. But one person does say, Liz, can you use fescue and clover to replace lawn? Um, I would guess it depends on on what your expectations are. If, if you're looking for a bowling green, um, probably not. <laughs> Nice, Gareth. Nice to have you on. That's Gareth Eloff there, a parks, open space and environment manager. So if we go around to your house, uh, Alexia, you, you'll be greeted with an unruly, unkempt, well, no, ugly-looking lawn. I mowed the lawn last week, so not <laughs> now, but in three weeks' time, yes. Oh, God. All right. Alexia Russell, Andy McCarthy. Andy, great to have you on again. Sure, Wallace. Yeah, good very good. Thank you. Uh, I'm Wallace Chapman, back for Wednesday. That's tomorrow, 3.45. For now, Lisa Owen. And checkpoint.